how happy is the blameless vessel's lot. The world forgetting by the world forgot. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. Is there any risk of brain damage? Well, uh, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage, but it's, it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you miss. It's time for a little something. I forget. My notes say I'm Professor Robert E. G. Black, and I'm here with Derek McDuff from Underrated, and it's time to discuss Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Your thing says Derek McDuff at Gmail, so I guess that's you. That that must be me. They're erasing me. <laughs> I have no memory of this, so take over. Robert, yeah, I uh, I I think I'm trying to remember a time before this podcast, and I'm having <laughs> a really a really tough time. I think that Mark Ruffalo is outside my brain doing something. It's the Hulk, right? Yeah, the Hulk. Yeah. Mary Jane's there. A lot of superhero actors. The guy from Batman who's like, your mommy and your daddy got shot. He's there too. Wait, who's that? Tom Wilkinson. Wait, which Batman was he in? He's in The Batman Begins doing that <gasps> weird accent. I forgot. Yeah, because huh. I remember like they came out around the same time and I was just like, oh wait, that's the Eternal Sunshine guy. Because I, I had seen this movie quite a few times for a normal movie. Like It was kind of my introduction to independent film. It mm. was... Like the first thing that I'd seen that I was like, it's really what was the beginning of my journey from being like, oh, I like to watch fun, big movies to like, I like movies that make me think because this yeah. movie came out, I was 14 years old. So I was like right there, like, oh, now this was the beginnings of little Derek becoming a film writer and podcaster. Nice. <laughs> or I would go on to like, be like, there's something else about this movie. And that's kind of why I fell in love with Focus Features, which was the A24 of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, my thing was in the 80s, we would watch movies all the time. Like we had cable pretty early. We would rent VHS movies. In the 90s, where I started picking what movies I was watching, I would seek out like all the ones up for an Oscar. Mm -hmm. Like that started. And I'd go to the weird little theater that wasn't the multi screen one and see something. And then by the early 2000s, yeah, I'm starting to pay attention. I'm like, ooh, another Charlie Coffin movie's coming out. I'm in. You know, Mm -hmm. start paying attention to the filmmakers a little more, other than the obvious big ones like Spielberg. And so when this movie came out, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to see that. I don't need to know what it's about. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love Kaufman. It's interesting because at first I think I focused on the wrong guy because I was like, oh, I got to see this other Michelle Gondry film. Ah. And like Gondry is good. Like, don't get oh, me yeah. wrong, but he's not the reason this movie is what it is. Like, no, he does no. some really cool technical stuff. But like the themes and everything are. I remember when I saw the Green Horn, I was like, "Ooh, you know, Michelle Gondry and Seth Rogen. And that was kind of a weird match. And I think that movie is interesting. Especially for the subject. <laughs> for being yeah, the Green Hornet. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 a whole other thing. But yeah, Charlie Kaufman is definitely the one that all the existential stuff that really, you know, blew my 14-year-old mind that I have gone back to and been like, you know, he's kind of interesting and enough like a lot like Alex Garland, I think, where was a writer, wrote all these really great things, and then just uh-huh. became a writer slash director. Yep. And his style is so much more apparent i think in those movies where he is also the director i think i do like him a little bit more when he's just the writer i think it goes a little overboard when he's doing both uh, i still like all those movies like i'm thinking of ending things in anomalies yeah. and stuff i actually still need to see snack in new york i haven't seen that one oh, or that adaptation yet which is like a big Synex so, so New yeah. York is one of my dream movies by minutes format things. I'm like, but no okay. one will ever come and guest on that. 
because no one wants to discuss that movie. It's depressing and sad and <laughs> long. And I'm like, no, but that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> I did a bracket of my favorite movies on my show, Cock and Bull Minute. And I'm like, I'm going to figure out what's similar about the movies on this list. Mm. And the thing that came up the most was some sense of melancholy. <laughs> I see what I'm into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's funny because, you know, you're right, because that's a movie that I've been wanting to watch for years. I've been wanting to watch it since it came out, but I've never been like, all right, today, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit down and watch Connect to New York. I've never had a day or just made myself do yeah. that, you know, because it's not something you just want to do out of the blue. Watch a movie that lingers on illness and grief and yeah. loneliness like i've seen grave of the fireflies i i, I mean, <laughs> exactly yeah i've seen that movie twice that's I, two more times than i i love it yeah. i don't think i want to watch it a third time yeah i i've seen it once i never need to see it again it's a five-star perfect movie oh yeah i will go my entire life probably without ever watching it again because once was good yeah once was enough fortunately synecdoche has the charlie kaufman sort of I wouldn't say zaniness because it's not Mm -hmm. energetic and fun, but it's that sort of like random. Oh my God. What does that mean? Like someone's house is just Mm -hmm. on fire. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like when they're looking at this house and deciding to move in, they're like, I'm a little worried about the fire, (laughs) but they move in anyway. It's like, that is, I love that. It's so like this surreal thing going on that he, he does good stuff with. And here it works for dreams. Mm-hmm. It plays nicely. And I think all of his movies kind of have this dreamlike quality where they seem real, but there's always something in the world that's a little bit off or weird or yep. just not quite normal. And here it's it's very quirky, you know, it's it's not exactly like a hide reality or magical realism, but it's more than real, you know. And yep. this one definitely has that with all of the like it's oh yeah it's just this world that you can you know go in and forget people and or like in being john malkovich it's like yeah it's, it seems like a mostly normal world but there's a building where there's like a half floor that you uh-huh. can go through and it's the tunnel in the john Malkovich. there's always something that's a little bit off about the world in a in the coffin movie yeah his most realistic movie is probably adaptation mm-hmm. which is the movie where he invented a twin brother for himself and then kills him off yeah for extra dramatic effect and like <laughs> that's your most realistic like down-to-earth movie and that's what you do yeah you need someone realistic and down-to-earth to play you who should i get how about nick cage yeah to play you twice <laughs> yeah perfect brilliant i love it yes yeah, so we're in minute 29 of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where joel is coming back to lacuna to tell him he wants to have the uh, process done Mirs Wiak is with Mrs. Wu, uh, another patient, as Joel and Mary come into frame. Mary's trying to stop him. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry, doctor. He just barged right in here. And Joel doesn't even care that he's interrupting. He's like, okay, I want it done. And I love Mary in this minute because she's just, she understands how this office works. They have other patients. Like I told him pre-Valentine's Day is our busy time. Yep. And me having worked in retail, it's like, oh my God, can you just chill? Like, <laughs> you have, like, the other, everyone's feeling what you're feeling, man. You don't get to be special just because you barge in. And then he's, the doctor's like, oh, well, what am I? Yeah. Oh, that, that, that's okay, Mary. Yeah. She's like, but there are people waiting. <laughs> Mr. Barish, if you'd like, he just waves them in. If you'd like to come in, then you get a reverse angle as Joel's kind of in the foreground, taking up most of the frame, but he's a little blurry. And then he moves past Mirs Weak into Mirs Weak's office, says uh, to come inside. And Mary, if you could take care of Mrs. Wu. And Mary goes right back. She's a professional. Like, yes, of course. Mirs Weak says goodbye, Mrs. Wu. And they walk away. And then we're inside Mirs Weak's office as he walks around to his chair. And he says, now, the, the first thing we need you to do, Mr. Barris, he's immediately in 
okay, we're going to do this mode, Mm. which I believe in the script. I forgot to put it in my notes. He actually explains to Mary, no, we're partly responsible for this happening. Like we're going to help Mr. Barish. Mm. Like he shouldn't have seen this note. We're going to help him. And instead he's just kind of, okay, let's do this. So the first thing we need you to do, Mr. Barish. And we cut as Mirzwea continues talking to Joel in his bed is to go home and collect everything you own that has some association. And we see Joel's hands unfolding a sheet of paper, which is a note from Clem, which has a star of David on it. It says, dear, dear Joel. It says, look, and the O's are little eyes. You and me on the Charles River. There's a heart. And so there's a picture of potato versions of them on ice because she makes potato people. Mm-hmm. And there's a speech bubble from his that says, I could die right now, Clem. I'm just happy. I've never felt it before. I'm just exactly where I want to be, which we'll see this scene later. Yeah. And I was going to say on that note of seeing it later, this is a really great montage for building up what we're going to see later on in the film. You know, like this is the best montage this side of Better Call Saul, to be honest, mm. where it's just like it's giving you all of these. It seems expositional, just like, okay, he's going and collecting this, but you're seeing all these things that are not important to us now are maybe not meaningful to us now, but are establishing these things that will be important later on in the film. Right. Like this note isn't even on scene long enough for you to read it. Mm-hmm. Like I paused because exactly. I was curious how detailed was their prop. Mm-hmm. We will see it again later. Yep. And Patrick will read from it. But he says, I'm just exactly where I want to be in the speech bubble and the I love that the photo is labeled. There's a little thing that says me with an arrow pointing up at her and a you <laughs> pointing up at him. <laughs> like he couldn't <laughs> figure that out. And three little hearts next to it. And then there's a speech bubble from the Clem potato. And I love this because it tells us something that happened on the ice that we didn't know. When we made love on the ice, it was absolutely freezing on my ass. It was wonderful. <laughs> That's what the speech bubble says. And oh then next gosh. to it says, I just had to tell you that Clem. Now that's good production design right, right. there. Just slip in stuff that like tell us stuff that we that. didn't know. Yeah, because it's you know I was going to catch that. Very few people, but it's it's just there for some authenticity to the movie and for the eagle-eyed viewers. That, and and that's it, really cool. Even then, it took two different shots in this minute of the note because we see it twice mm-hmm. to figure out what it said at the end. Yeah, because we only see part of the paper. Yeah, it's almost not not quite because you do see it, but it's almost like the Bernard Hill story when you talk about Lord of the Rings and the little suns that are on the inside of his oh, yeah. vest that were sewn in for his costume for being, you know, the King of Rohan. He's like, no one's ever going to see that in the movie, but that's just there to make the thing more authentic. Yeah. And, and when he's experience. putting that costume on, he's going to see mm-hmm. it. He's going to see like the underneath layers of clothing mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like Gandalf, his white outfit was, was it five different layers? Each had a different texture to it, hmm. but on camera, we don't see that yeah. texture. It's never up close. But we get sort of a hint of it in the lighting, the way it reflects. And he gets that when he puts it on. Exactly. And having that detail, what seems minute and maybe pointless, it, it adds so much to the film. And I think that's maybe one of the failings of the Hobbit films is that they just kind of gloss over everything with CG. And that's yeah. part of that's just because those movies were really, really rushed. Weren't able to put the time and the effort into them that they did with Lord of the Rings. But with right. Lord of the Rings, and it's something I've been thinking a lot recently with the show that just came out where they seems like they are putting in the effort to make this this huge this rich rich world that tolkien created but it doesn't have to be a fantasy world to put that kind of detail in like we said you can do it with the movie Mm -hmm. that is 
more or less the real world like this. I forget what movie it was now, but there was a movie where just like the costume had one button that didn't match the others. Mm-hmm. I remember the uh, the act. Oh, who was that? I, if I can find it, I'll edit it in here description. But the actor talking about how like they had sort of their own little backstory is how that button fell off and they had to replace it. Yeah. And I'm like, that's amazing. And it could have been just random that like the costumer didn't think they'd even see it. So they just used a button they had or something. It's always great to do stuff like that as an actor. And I'll just tell like a little personal story here is I was an actor for a little while in high school and I was in like the the production of Guys and Dolls and I was playing Lieutenant Brannigan, you know, the one who's going after them. And in the script, it said like, oh, everyone wears a red carnation. So they know each other. They know who to like, who the gamblers are and stuff like that. (laughs) And we had ordered the red carnations and they came in these fake ones. And then they changed it to white for the production because they popped a lot better on stage. Mm, But we still had some of the red ones. And I just, I didn't, I just did this for me. I wore one of the red carnations because in my (laughs) mind, I had found that out, but I had gotten the old red carnation. (laughs) So I was trying to like sleuth them out. And I never told anybody that in the play or anything or like anyone, but it was just, it's just nice to have those little things yeah. that just work for you. I like that. And meanwhile, as we're, as I'm pausing to read the note, Mirrors React continues that it's has some association with Clementine. And we see Joel looking down at that note. Mirrors React says anything. He folds up the note, puts it with an envelope. So she mailed this to him, which is fun, into a box with some other letters. And then I get stuck pausing again. This took me a while. Because he pulls a board game off a shelf mm, yeah, yeah. and it moves so fast past the camera, I could not read the title. But then I'm like, how many car racing board games are there? Because I'm like, it looks like they made this up for the movie because the cover art is a blue car chasing a red car. And in the foreground, we have five people, a man and a woman, which I'm like, oh, Mirrors Weak and his wife and a kid, Mary, maybe. And then two I thought were men because it's partly covered, Stan and Patrick on the other side. It's actually a man and a woman on the actual cover because it's a real game. Hmm. It's a 2001 game from Schilling called Speedway Auto Racer, a classic tin cars race around track as it tilts and twists. It's kind of a weird game. It's this track that moves in a circle and like tilts as these cars are going around. So they'll slow down and speed up. It seems very complicated. (laughs) And it looks like a game from like the 70s or 60s with the tin cars on these little rods. Yeah. But it came out in 2001. So this is a relatively new game at the time. This that feels appropriate because a lot of the stuff in this, it's, you know, very early 2000, 2003, 2004, but it feels a lot more of an earlier era. You know, even the way a lot of the characters act and stuff, it's, it's kind of, even though she's like, oh, she feels very modern. She's got the hair dye and stuff like that. And the mm-hmm. way that you only see someone from this era, there's all this old timey stuff how joel calls her a wino and she's like oh you're yeah. from the 50s or whatever yeah. there's all these it's oh, it's very um oh my gosh i'm trying to think of the word just um anachronistic almost yeah which yeah the game works i almost wish we'd seen like them playing it or something later just mm-hmm. to see how weird yeah. it was instead <laughs> it's just a random game i'm like okay board game they play that together of course he's going to remember that with her mm-hmm. maybe yeah. they bought it together maybe they didn't even like it yeah it's one of my suggestions as to what caleb should be doing with ava and instead of just having conversations is play games with her watch movies with her mm-hmm. you know do other things to see how she reacts to them just don't play chess we learned that from arrival that makes everything a competition <laughs> yes <laughs> mirrors react continues and we'll use these items we get a shot of a photo album has a Washington, D.C. postcard, a photo of Joel with some guy. There's a few photos with the same guy in it, and I was wondering if it was someone in, I couldn't figure it out, but whether it's someone um, that he knows in real life or if this was someone involved with the production, these photos were taken for this photo album. I don't know. Yeah. 
I do solve this one next week. It is the actual artist of Joel's pictures, Paul Proke. Uh, we see a shot of Clem with blue hair and a shot, a photo in there of Clem with red hair. And then another photo of Joel with two other people. As mirrors we access to create a map of Clementine in your brain. Okay. And we see another page as Joel rips off a photo that's below a Polaroid. It's a photo of Clem and Joel head to head on the ice, which is weird because I don't know who took this photo. Yeah. I like the picture. There's no drones back in 2004. Right? <laughs> like it was just a random person out there in the middle of the night on the ice. <laughs> I mean, I guess they could be if she's into it. Some other people must be. Yeah. And then another page among other photos, there's a picture of Clem as a child in a cowgirl outfit. We won't really know this is Clementine. So, of course, he turns it around so we can see the label. It says Clementine, six years old. And we'll see. Another thing that comes back later. later. Yeah. Yeah. Mirrors back continues. So we'll need uh, uh, photos. We see Joel in a mirror with a photo booth strip of photos and a picture of Clem with her eyes closed. And he pulls those both down. Mirrors back says clothing, gifts. We see the Valentine's gift in the red box, which we've already seen a couple times. Books. And we see Joel ripping pages out of his journal. And I noted here his drawing style reminds me of Clive Barker with his ink drawings. But the actual art is done by an artist named Paul N.W. Proke. Still has a website with these drawings up on it. And his website looks like it was designed at the time the movie came out. <laughs> like it has little things that move after your movement over your mouse and stuff you would have put on a website <laughs> years ago. Yeah. The first drawing goes a little too fast to recognize, but the next one, it's a mechanical arm with its hand cut off. There is half of a drawing that we see that is a clothes hanger. I love this drawing, the actual picture. I may use it as the art for this episode because it's a clothes hanger with a coffin is the cloth. The cloth becomes a coffin that has a window in it, but the bottom of the coffin is also sitting in a chair. So it's like many levels of surreal as it goes down the drawing. <laughs> like as your eyes scan, it becomes different things. But also that hanger is hanging from, but really through a finger. There's a hand at the top of the picture and the hanger is poking through the finger. I'm like, he's got some really interesting artwork, Joel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's interesting. That's really cool. And then the next picture at a glance, it's a skeleton hanging from a noose, which is like, okay, that's his kind of thing. We've seen he's got skeletons around the apartment, but there's this extra bit where there's a rope tied to its feet as well. So something is hanging off of the skeleton that is being hanged. And then we see a drawing of Clem with her red hair on the train. It is not the drawing we saw him working on in minute five. This actually has Joel in the picture as well. So he later drew a picture of the two of them together on the train, which is a nice little touch. Hmm. And for some reason, there's a pair of badminton or tennis rackets behind them sticking out of a suitcase. I don't know why. I couldn't figure that one out. I guess they just like to play tennis or badminton. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. And then we see another drawing of Joel and Clem lying on the ice, which this makes sense. A photo of them on the ice is a little weird. A drawing of it, he might have drawn that later, just like she made the potatoes later. And we hear Mirrors React continue. She may have bought you CDs. We don't see a CD here because they cut that specific reference. It was referenced several times that there was a specific CD that she gave him and they talked about, but it doesn't get in here. Instead, we see a cupboard and Joel has a post banana nut crunch box in his left hand. So I guess that was her cereal <laughs> that she ate all the time, but he's reaching for a mug that we got to cut to a different angle of the mug rotated a little better so we can see it. It's a photo of Clem on the mug. And he will take that. As Mirchweck says, you may have bought together journal entries. And Joel grabs a pig head cookie jar, which if you like cookie jars, this is from DeForest of California. It's from the 1950s. Written on its forehead, it says, go ahead, make a pig of yourself. 
I thought it was just hair painted on its head, <laughs> but no, it's writing. And he lowers it into a trash bag on the floor. And then we cut to a shot of him dragging that trash bag around the apartment. And then we're in the bathroom and Joel grabs her deodorant from the medicine cabinet, which is a nice touch. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that belongs to her, but you wouldn't necessarily think of. He drops that into the bag. And we hear Mir's react say, we, we want to empty your home. And we won't get any more dialogue in this minute. But then Joel grabs Clem's leopard print coat off the bed and he like yanks it up with a flourish. He's holding some other piece of cloth in the other hand. So she left some clothing behind. He's throwing that away too. Or well, not throwing it away, but taking it to the, I hope they donate yeah. these things. Although that could be a problem. Yeah. You... I just imagine that, like they donate them to like Goodwill and then he's shopping there and finds a picture he drew. <laughs> just messes your mind. This. Yeah. That would be even weirder. Yeah. That stuff erased and it shows up again. So they have to almost incinerate everything. Right. I guess you got it. You know, hopefully creepy Frodo doesn't get him. <laughs> well, he does get some. <laughs> yeah. He's got a backpack's worth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think all that stuff, all because, you know, that is something very real. You know, everybody has like a shoebox of things of like the mementos or not everybody, but a lot of people have that like shoebox of like mementos that you're like, all right, I'm going to take all this stuff and maybe put them over here. Some people like the clean house and it can be, you know, anything like, you know, a shirt that your ex bought you or something mm-hmm. like that. And I think that that is saying something really interesting about memory, about how, you know, these are memories of a person are tied to these physical mementos and items and him kind of just like purging physically these items before he mentally will purge them in the next act, I think is an interesting call forward. It's also sort of a trope of like a romantic comedy or even sitcoms mm-hmm. where like you break yeah. up and you take all the stuff you had with that person and you burn it or burn their letters, yeah, rip their photos up. He's doing it in a much bigger way because he's taking all that stuff in a trash bag, mm-hmm. which is totally appropriate, huh. not just convenient, but appropriate yeah. visually to Lacuna who will keep them yeah. or destroy them or whatever and erase all the references in his head, which We've talked a lot on the show of what else will get erased in the process. Like if you destroy some of your art or two years worth of his journal. Yeah. Like he, when he goes back to like the beginning and he's like, oh, there's hasn't been a journal entry for two years. And I'm like, yeah. How depressed does he think he's been <laughs> that he doesn't even remember ripping things out. And then he just, it's interesting because he, after all that, he just kind of defaults back to the previous romance he had with Naomi. And I yep. know they cut all of that out yeah. or most of it out, but like, is he just kind of goes back to that? That's that's interesting. Well, yeah. One of the things we don't get in the movie is literally he had a one night stand with Naomi the night before, mm-hmm. which because he can't quite remember last night might be the night before it was erased or it might have been earlier that same night that he got erased, which is a weird choice. Yeah. And then doesn't he, correct me if I'm wrong, but when he goes after he hangs out with Clem, he goes back home and in the movie you just see him and he's like, oh, I just got in. Yeah. But then he called Naomi first. Yeah. He calls Naomi first, which is like makes him so much more unlikable and i get why they cut that well yeah even the ending we do get a hint that he like they reference the fact he's living with someone Mm -hmm. but we don't meet that someone she's an abstract exactly with the cut scenes we see him leaving for that party and naomi stays home because she's doing work she's like a known i forget who it was but like she's like a known it's ellen pompeo yeah this is this would have come out right about the same time gray's anatomy was starting and she's the lead in that she'd been in a few things before like people would have noticed her. Mm-hmm. There's a great visual in that moment, though, that gets cut out later where he leaves the apartment and he's like telling her she should come. And she makes a joke 
this isn't the visual, but she makes a joke about him finding someone like to have sex with or something. I forget how she phrases it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, like she's making a joke about him meeting someone new. And he does. But the great visual is his side of the apartment is like cluttered with all this stuff. And the little corner in the dining area at the table where she's working is like empty. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, either she's already moving out and this relationship's over, or she's a different kind of person than he or Clem is. Yeah. Because they're kind of people have stuff. (laughs) Yeah. He has so much stuff. Yeah. Clem's apartment is cluttered. It's not messy, but it is cluttered. Mm-hmm. And I I can relate to that. Same, same. <laughs> I like stuff. Yeah, I I'm I mean I got my I like to collect things, as you can see, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, but yeah, I, I think the the other thing too that I really wanted to talk about with this minute, and it's been cool being at the 29th minute here because that's usually and a lot of times in movies you'll get the big changing points are usually the act breaks or the midpoint. Right. And I think you know with all of these movies that we've talked about, we've seen characters at a big changing point where they have to kind of something important happens caleb's talking to ava doing all Mm -hmm. these things bill murray is you know phil is he's like okay he's on day three he's figuring things out realizing it's real and this one i think is the most like because up to this point joel has been a very passive protagonist like that's kind of his thing is like well until a few couple minutes ago we didn't even know what the plot was yeah the opening credit, like the title comes in at like what minute 20 or something like that. Uh-huh. And he spends the whole beginning talk about how he can't even engage with another, you know, he can't, it's like, Oh, I, I want to meet somebody, but I can't even talk to this pretty stranger. Like he's so passive. Mm-hmm. And here he finally, I think he makes two really big decisions in this movie, which one is to like stop the erasure, which happens at about almost exactly the midpoint. And the other one is yeah. to go ahead and do it. And you Start see it, him right. like actually like, okay, boom, taking charge and just like really running in and like cutting everybody off like we were saying before to the point where mary is like well you can't do this and i think that's that's very accurate of a lot of introverted people who they they kind of like just go along with it go along with it and then when they make a decision it's like okay it has to happen doing this and it has to happen now exactly you see him just like right now in this 29th minute like all right here we go and that's what kind of kicks off the whole plot of this movie is is right here in this minute i think yeah and fortunately for the movie and for Joel, Mirzwiak is like, well, yeah, we will help you because mm-hmm. you weren't supposed to know. Yeah. David Cross and, and his uh, girlfriend who are fighting the entire movie. We all have friends like that. who are just yeah. like, you guys have been together for like 10 years and just like every time I'm around you guys, you just fight and it's super awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the only time they're not fighting is at the end of the movie. Yeah. Which is when nice like- for them. But oh, yeah, that's a few like, years ago. So yeah, they're like, you met somebody pretty. Team. I'm like, mm-hmm. they know Naomi. They're kind of being scumbags. Right. Right they know now. he lives with someone. <laughs> yeah. But they're like, oh, who is that? You're talking yeah. to cheating on your girlfriend with. <laughs> like, I don't think they made love on the sand like they do on the ice. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, this uh, yeah. These are big minutes because the movies are about to get going. It was interesting the first like 20 minutes of this movie in this show is like. If you hadn't seen this movie and hadn't seen a trailer and don't know the plot, what is this? It's like a rom-com, except they're kind of depressed. Yeah. And then it abruptly turns to sadness. Yeah. It's sort of romantic. Right. And it's sort of a comedy, but it's like not overtly. Like you're not like laughing and you're not like, oh, this is sweet. You're still feeling those feelings. Yeah. But through a much different lens, I guess is the best way to put it. It's like it takes that structure and just Mm -hmm. changes the tone just enough where you're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm enjoying this. Yeah. And and you brought up an interesting point a couple episodes ago uh, or your guest that I can't remember um, about how. She is kind of the quote unquote manic pixie dream girl, but 
what that would be like in the real world. And I feel like she is almost deconstruction of mm-hmm. that character. Like she's like the messed up person. She keeps saying, I'm not an ideal. I'm not. Right. An ideal. It's like a recurring thing. And that's the thing with so many of these manic pixie dream girls that are just written by male screenwriters. They seem like just an ideal. They're just, you know, this kind of prize to be won or whatever. And that goes to what you were talking about with like themes from Charlie Kaufman, mm-hmm. his scripts. There's always that woman who is this like fantasy, mm-hmm. sometimes literally. Yeah. There are yeah. people that don't exist mm-hmm. in the reality of the film. You know, I, I, I don't want to spoil which movie that is <laughs> for people who haven't seen, but yeah, there's that in each of his movies. It depends on how the main character interacts with that character is how you can kind of judge that movie in a way. Yeah. And I think you could probably say the same thing about Joel. He is that nice guy trope mm-hmm. and what that kind of like quiet, nice guy, you know, like we saw with Caleb would be like in in real life which he is also this broken guy who gets he's quiet and stuff like that but when you get to know him he's kind of a fucking asshole like he's just (laughs) a huge jerk and he's like saying all these really mean things to her and stuff like that and he's niche he's cheating on his like living like girlfriend he's like well i'm not married and just like he's like almost the embodiment of r slash nice guys like Mm It's also those tropes of romantic comedy is mm-hmm. as uh, this was my wife when she was a guest, she's a professor like me of communication. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about it as far as rom-coms go, you often have the male character is sort of autistic coded as he's the shutdown character who needs to be brought out of his shell. And he meets the ADHD girl mm-hmm. who makes his life more exciting. And it's both realistic because yeah, a guy like that will want a girl like that, but it's mm-hmm. a trope of movies because you have to have something to pull that guy out. You have to make the plot happen. Mm-hmm. And this movie, right as that starts to happen, it's like, oh, but then it ended badly because that's how it happened. That's life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that's the reality. Now what? Yeah. yeah. But it is still kind of hopeful and romantic mm-hmm. in the end, you know, because they do like they're like, yeah. Right. Knowing they'll have problems. A, do it again. It's almost like a time loop movie. It's not literally a time loop movie, but they... And, you know, I, I'm sure you know how originally they wanted the credits to have them just keep erasing each other over and over again. Yep. And the way the movie ends with like, he's like, yeah, we know this is going to end badly, but it's still worth it. It's still worth the journey. And that's how I feel with a lot of romance and stuff. And I would never want to forget somebody. Exactly. I've been in a lot of romantic relationships that ended poorly but it was still worth it. I would do it all over again to have this experience. Yeah. I I understand the immediate impulse. Like Joel Mm -hmm. is making this decision right when he doesn't even really think they should be broken up yet. Yeah. And so I get that. I don't want to deal with this pain, put it away, Mm -hmm. which if they did a temporary service, that would be awesome. (laughs) Give you a little time. We'll take away some of the pain, but you can remember the details. Mm -hmm. The emotion's gone. And then it slowly seeps back in. That'd be cool. Yeah. But instead, it's no, just cut all this out. Yeah. And they cut it in reverse order. So at some point, he's happy again and he wants it to stop. And that's not good for the process. Yeah. Well, it's like, have you, have you watched any of Severance by any chance? Yes. Yeah. I love the way Severance deals with that because he, you know, he goes to his job where he's severed and stuff like that. And he doesn't remember. So he doesn't deal with his sadness. He doesn't yeah. deal with it. And, but people are like, yeah, you're still sad. You just don't really know why you're sad. Right. He's still got that sad thing going on but also his life outside of work is now still sad it's just half the length mm-hmm. yeah it's it's all his that, emotional okay. growth is stunted because he has yeah. half the time to process these emotions right sometimes you need your work day in order mm-hmm. to help process it because you need to be able to not you need to be able to separate from it while remembering it not just separate from it 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, Severance plays with that in very interesting ways with those characters as to what they're like in person and why they want to be there mm-hmm. and who they are on the inside because they're still the same people. Yeah, they're still the same people. They, they kind of like, but they're like, oh, they talk about them, their other selves like they are other people, but sometimes they'll talk about them like they are the same person mm-hmm. and the, the way they are almost like at odds with themselves. Like yeah. it's so that's, that's a really existential. Like if anybody listening wants to watch a TV show, that's very existential. Like check that out. Like I think Ben Stiller is honestly a genius and doesn't get the credit he deserves because he's hilarious. And that's what people think of him as, but like he's done some really great deep stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, the plot gets a little bizarre, but hey, if you're listening to this, you probably like Charlie Kaufman stuff, so that <laughs> plot will work. And yeah. arguably, some of the stuff going on with the plot of that show with like the weird cult for their leader is what's going to happen if the only thing you remember is when you're at work. Yeah, yeah. Over exactly. time, they're going to have to come up with some sort of internal mythology. Mm-hmm. They have to have internal lives. That's what people will do. Yeah, exactly. And like we talked about before, people idolize these titans of industry, you know, these Mm -hmm. Elon Musk bros and, you know, all these people who are just like, oh, yeah, but the Tesla is going to save the world and we're going to go to space. Yeah. And their boss is literally the only one they know of anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to worship him. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Or reject him because they can't worship him. (laughs) And violence ensues (laughs) and hilarity. Severance. I love that show. Yeah, it's a it's awesome. Apple TV, like out of nowhere, has been just show after show killing it. Yeah. This is always a movie that if I ever go through a bad breakup or something, I will watch to remind myself of the hurt and it's better to remember than to forget. Like a line I always think of, it's from um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and it's Don't Regret Remember um, or something along that. I might be misquoting, but yes. that's another really great film that deals yeah. with a lot of these same issues. And if people want to hear you talk about other films, I don't know if you've ever covered that one, but. Where can they find you? Not not yet, but maybe maybe someday because that is one of my all-time favorites. But we talk about on my podcast, Underrated, Underrated Films. That is on all the podcasting apps. Look up Underrated or look up Undercast Company. You'll find Underrated in any other podcast that I do. It's a lot of fun because we get to talk about movies that wouldn't get necessarily covered on other podcasts. Or you can just look up Derek McDuff, find my writing on places like Medium, or I've done freelance for a variety of sites, including Watch Mojo. So yeah, look me up there. Derek McDuff, Underrated is the name of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for more Eternal Sunshine. And you can follow all three shows on one feed. Just search An Existential Trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Spotless Minute. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. This is it, Joel. I'm gonna be gone soon. Okay, we'll be I know. What do we do? Look, we're going off. Enjoy it. Can you hear me? I don't want this anymore. I want to call it off.